Our reading is from Acts chapter 16, verse 9 to 34. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, Come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. From Troas, we put to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day we went on to Neapolis. From there, we travelled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia, and there we stayed for several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the woman who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira, named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptised, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Once when we were going to a place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune time. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God, who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the Spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the Spirit left her. When her owners realised that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was a violent earthquake, that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once all the prison doors flew open, 
and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison's doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself, we are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. You and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptised. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. Amen. And thanks to God for his word. This is the story of how the gospel came to Europe. Paul up to this point had been travelling, spreading the news of Jesus all through what we now call Turkey, Asia Minor, when he got a vision. A vision of a man from Macedonia in northern Greece calling him to come over and to share the good news. And so Paul and his companions travelled over what we now call the Dardanelles into northern Greece. The significance of that journey wouldn't have been missed on the ancient readers of the book of Acts because about 350 years before Paul's time there had been an invasion in the opposite direction. When a man from Macedonia had invaded the Eastern world, had invaded Turkey and beyond, and created the largest empire that there ever was, that man was Alexander the Great. He won battle after battle, but more importantly, what he did changed the world. It brought Greek culture, Greek language into the Eastern world. It's the reason that Paul could move around different cities in different countries, speaking Greek and share the good news of Jesus. It's the reason that our New Testament is written in Greek today. But for all the impact that Alexander's invasion would have, Paul's invasion would have far more. 2,000 years of the world being changed. And it wasn't an army that came to Europe that day. It was just four of them. Paul, his travelling companion Silas, a young lad named Timothy, and Luke. You might have noticed as we read the passage that it's changed from other days where it's all Luke telling us what they did to Luke saying what we did. He was there, the witness to the gospel coming to Europe at that time. So it started in Philippi, the first place in Europe where they came. Philippi was named after Philip. Philip had been the father of Alexander the Great, Philip of Macedonia. But it was famous far more for a battle that had happened there, the Battle of Philippi, which had happened only a hundred years before Paul came. 
That battle had been a battle for the control of the Roman world. It was fought between Brutus and Cassius on one side, who had assassinated Julius Caesar, and the heirs of Caesar, Octavian and Mark Antony, on the other. After the Caesar's side won, Mark Antony and Octavian changed the nature of Philippi forever because they took their veteran soldiers and they settled them there. They declared the place to be a Roman colony. So here was a city where East met West, where Rome met Greece, where all sorts of people came together. And yet, that city today is famous not because of Philip or the battle, but because of those four men, and more specifically, what they left us for the church today. The record that we've just read about the story of Philippi from Luke and Paul himself writing again a letter back later to that little church that he would plant in Philippi, the letter that we know as the letter to the Philippians. We're going to look this morning at the church in Philippi. We're going to learn about three of the characters there as Luke tells us the story and ask questions about what that might mean for us, the church today. The ancient stories tell us that in the Roman world there was a group of people that were known as God-fearers sometimes or just worshippers of God. They were Gentiles, not Jews, but they had become strangely attracted to the Jewish faith. They believed in one God like the Jews. They'd often go to the synagogue to worship on the Sabbath. They'd want to read the Jewish scripture and learn more of the God of Abraham. They'd often follow his ways and his teachings his ethics, they were attracted to this religion of the one God. When Paul came to Philippi, he would have looked for the synagogue. That was his normal way of operating. But in Philippi, in the city, there was no synagogue. Perhaps there were very few Jews. So he went looking for the place where people might gather. He found it outside the city, a place of prayer. Luke tells the story perhaps from memory of what happened next. They went there and sure enough on the Sabbath they found people gathering, perhaps to read the scripture, certainly to learn more. These were God-fearers. And the four friends began to tell them of the Messiah who had come, who fulfilled all the Jewish law and the promises and opened up the kingdom of God, not just to Jews, but to Gentiles as well, who could become baptized and become full members of, of, of the body of Christ. One of them that was listening that day quite intently was a woman called Lydia. She was from a place called Thyatira, which is actually back in Asia Minor in Turkey. In fact, the place that she was from was in a province called Lydia. So Lydia might not have been her name. It might be a more of a nickname, the lady from Lydia. She was an immigrant to that place. But she was also in the rag trade. She dealt the Bible tells us, in purple cloth. Now it's interesting because we know that the purple dyes came from Thyatira and that area. We also know that they were expensive, very expensive. So a person who had the wherewithal to deal in purple cloth probably had a little bit of wealth. She certainly had a house of her own that she could invite people back to. It was big enough and maybe some servants as well. So here is a Gentile but a very religious Gentile. 
someone who worships the one true God, who believes in him, who gathers to pray on the Sabbath, who follows some parts of Jewish teaching, and yet who must always have felt that they never quite belonged. They weren't really Jews, always on the outskirts of things and going not to the temples in the city, but going to the place of prayer down by the river outside the city, a quite a marginal place. And there that day, she learned of Jesus, who welcomed her, who adopted her, who wanted her. Lydia's story is a story that quite a lot of people might resonate with. Good religious people who have tried to live under good Christian ethics. They've maybe gone to worship very regularly. But somehow when they come to find Jesus in all his fullness, it invites them to something very much deeper. We're told that God opened her heart that day. It wasn't just her intellect in believing this Jewish faith or her ethical stances that she had taken before, but suddenly the whole thing became real to her in Jesus. She was baptised. She was one of them. The gospel is good news for religious people. I know so many testimonies of folk who have gone to church their whole lives, believed all these things, and only later on has the real message of Jesus drop for them and become exciting for them, their hearts open to the joy of the gospel. And it wasn't just her mind that was opened that day, her heart that was opened that day, it was also her house. Very practically, she invited these four men to come back and stay with her and she offered them hospitality. It was a bit of a risk. You see, she'd been going to a place outside the city to worship till now. Maybe nobody knew her clients and our customers. Now she was inviting these Jews with their faith in Jesus Christ right into the centre of her home and maybe other Christians would gather there too. This was not anonymous. Her reputation was at the line. She was a single woman inviting men back to her house as well. But none of that mattered because she had an excitement in Jesus. If you read on to the end of the passage, end of this chapter, you'll see in verse 40 that Paul and Silas would go back to her home as if the church was beginning to gather there. Another story here, a religious woman going dedicatedly to church and suddenly from being feeling marginal to faith, she's right in the centre of it. And that's the joy of the gospel, that when you come to love Jesus and know that you're accepted by him, when you come to not having to do all the religious things to feel that you belong and know that you've been born again, that you've been baptised, that you're his. It moves from the periphery to the centre. You know that you're loved and you're part of all that he's offering. This is good news for religious people. And that's good for many of us. So they were going back and forward to this place of prayer outside the city, talking to the woman. And as they did that, they encountered another woman. A slave. Although it wasn't so much they encountered her as she sort of latched onto them, followed them around, shouting out. She was needy. Needy people often latch. Not only was she a slave, she was someone who had been financially and spiritually abused. She had been exploited by her owner. She had some form of spiritual connection to the occult that was really messing with her head and her life. Near Philippi in Greece was a place called Delphi. 
It was a very famous place because there there was an oracle. And that was a woman, always a woman, who was seen to have the spirit of Apollo descended upon her that enabled her to see the future and give prophecies to people, often so open-ended that they could be true or false or who knows what. Real believers in the supernatural saw this as some sort of mystical line to the gods. Other people thought it was just a cheap fraud that would took money off people who were gullible. Either way, there was something very wrong about it. Luke tells us that this woman had a python spirit as well, the same sort of spirit as the oracle had at Delphi. Whatever was going on, though, it was messing with her, and she was being financially exploited by those who owned her. Paul, we're told, eventually got annoyed. The word in Greek means that he might not have been so much annoyed with her as annoyed for her. This had to stop. And so he turns around and he tells the evil spirit within her to be gone. She was healed that day. The occult was over. Her life was changed. And she could no longer be physically and spiritually and financially abused and exploited by her owners in the same way. That was the story of her life, though. Nobody had cared about her. She had no freedom, socially, spiritually, economically. The only thing that people cared about was the money that she could bring in. It was different that day. Because suddenly the gospel had touched her life and not only set her free, but included her. The power of Jesus wasn't just a power that came that people who didn't believe, like Lydia, could start to believe and find the fullness of their religion. It was also to be a power that set oppressed and exploited and abused people free, that began to change and literally set free and take off the chains of the things that bound people back. The message for this for us has got to be this, that the church today can't choose between being politically and socially active, trying to make a difference to people's lives and to be involved in evangelism, sharing the good news that people might become Christians. The two must always go together because they went together with Jesus and they went together with those that followed him. So the gospel, good news for the religious, the well-off, the comfortable, but also really good news for someone who is poor and trapped, abused, and feeling that absolutely nobody cares about them. And now a third person to be added to the church, a flippin' jailer. Philippian, Philippian jailer? Philippian, no, forget it. The owners of the slave girl dragged Paul and Silas into the marketplace. The marketplace, or the agora as it was called, wasn't just the place where trade went on. It was also a place where judgments went on. The magistrates would meet there and they would deal with any cases that came before them. This is a very Roman setting we have here of the magistrates sitting in judgment. The owners charged, well, their complaint was really financial. They'd lost all the money from the slave girl, but they dressed it up in different ways. These Jews are teaching things which us Romans can't accept. So it's dressed up in anti-Semitism, followed by a sort of ethnic pride in their Romanness. The result is pretty inevitable. The magistrates side with the, the rich owners, have these two strangers or these flogged and put in prison for the night. It's interesting that it's Paul and Silas. Where, where were Timothy and, uh, and, and, and Luke? Had They had the good sense to make their escape at that point. But this is the part of the story where the jailer enters. We don't know much about his background, but we can speculate a little. 
Perhaps he is part of the Roman establishment. Maybe he was an ex-soldier ex himself settled in that place. At any rate, he's got an official position in charge of the jail. He's fairly comfortable. The first thing that he noticed that night was at midnight when he was woken by two idiots singing songs. They'd been flogged. They'd been beaten. They'd been put in stocks. They were in a cell. They didn't know what was going to happen to them in the morning. And they're singing hymns of praise. That must have struck him as a bit insane, but actually something more than that. Because as he looked round, he must have noticed that the normal lot of hardened criminals that he had in there, the petty thieves and the who knows what's, they were listening to the songs. They'd seen something different in these men that had begun to change their lives. Then there was the earthquake. An earthquake in itself wasn't that strange. That part of the world is prone to a lot of small earthquakes that can shake buildings and make things fall down. What was really scary for the jailer was that the doors of the prison cell had burst open and by the time he got up and realised what was going on, it had some time had passed. He just simply assumed that the prisoners would have run away. What else would prisoners do when the prison doors are open? So he does something else which seems strange to us but wasn't that strange for a Roman official. He takes out his sword and he's about to kill himself. There's been a failure here. He's going to be in all sorts of trouble. He's lost all honour and the only honourable way out for a Roman at that point was to take their own lives. He's just about to top himself when he hears Paul's voice. Don't harm yourself, we're all here. It might have been strange enough if those two mad Jesus freaks were still hanging around. But what must have blown that Roman's mind is that when he looked round, he saw not just them, but all the prisoners. Why on earth had these thieves stayed about? What had they seen in this message that they'd been listening to from Paul and Silas that had changed their criminal lives in such a way that they had done this? I don't know what was going through his head that day, but he asked a very simple question. What must I do to be saved? It's a very odd question in some ways from a man who was just about to kill himself. But I wonder that suddenly as he looked at these criminals, he asked a question that had so much to do with being saved from sin. He must have been aware maybe of all his own past and feelings and the things he'd been up to and how far away from God he was. That day, he became a Jesus man. He wanted what Paul and Silas had. He wanted his life changed and transformed in the way that those criminals had been. And so he took Paul and Silas. And with water, he washed their wounds from their flogging. And with water, they washed him in the wounds of Jesus Christ who had died for him and he became that day a believer, a transformed individual and the third part of the church in Philippi. The story actually goes on from there. It's worth reading to the end of chapter 16 in the book of Acts. You'll find out what happens. The next morning, the officials send a message to say that Paul and Silas are to be released. They can, they can go. And then Paul points out that he's actually a Roman citizen. That's a bit strange. We think Paul probably got his Roman citizenship through his father. If you were the slave of a Roman and you were released by a Roman, 
then you took on the citizenship of the person that set you free. And it may well have been that Paul's father had been a slave who'd been set free from Tarsus. It doesn't really matter anyway. When Paul said, I'm a Roman citizen, it would have got the authorities quite worried because a Roman citizen had rights that nobody else had. It meant that they couldn't be beat up by the local officials and they certainly couldn't be thrown in prison. And so they had committed a crime as they had done that. They could be in all sorts of trouble. Paul demanded an apology and he got it. But then he was asked to leave town. They didn't want any more trouble. Before he left, though, Paul, we're told, went back, verse 40 tells us this, to Lydia's house and met there with the brothers and the sisters. The church that had been formed, the little odd group that had come from that place down outside the city right into the house of Lydia. It included, no doubt, other folk like Lydia, religious people who had come to believe. It included the slave girl. Maybe others like her as well, people who had never been loved, never been important, suddenly finding a new place for themselves in the body of Christ. And it included a hard man from the establishment, the flippin' jailer. Whatever baggage he'd had that had found forgiveness, salvation in Jesus. As we think about that church and the fact that three different people who joined it all had different experiences, perhaps we need to remember that among ourselves there will be all sorts of different ways that we've come to faith in Jesus. The gospel is good news for the religious, it's good news for the marginalised and the people who feel excluded, and it's good news for folk that just know that they are not good enough and they've done everything wrong. As we reach out as a church into our community, there will be all sorts of folk with all sorts of stories very different from ours, the one conviction that we have as we go is that we have good news in Jesus to share and to set people free. But not just that, to invite them into a family. And one of the important things as we think about that church family is it cannot be made in one mould where we want people to become like us with our values and our backgrounds. But we actually accept that the church will be full of people who are very very different. Paul would write later that there is in Christ neither slave nor free nor male nor female, neither Jew nor Greek, but all are one in Christ. A number of years later, Paul was in prison again for a longer period and the result was much more serious. But as he was in that prison, he wrote to the Philippians the letter that we know as the letter to the Philippians. Let me just read part of that. And as I'm reading this, perhaps just picture that little church with Lydia and the flippin' jailer and the slave girl and how they must have heard this as it was read to them from their friend. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart, and whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you sharing God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Jesus Christ. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best 
and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. As I read that, I, I ended up skimming through the rest of the letter to the Philippians and thinking about how those three people would have received it. Paul tells them he's going to send Timothy back to them. That must have delighted them. They knew young Timothy when he was younger. He then said to them, rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. And I can just imagine the big grin on the, the jailer's face as he heard those words and thought of Paul and Silas, those mad Jesus people singing songs in the prison. And then he spoke about how God was using the fact he was in chains and some people, even some of the guards in Caesar's household had become Christians. And again, you can just see the jailer nodding. Then he talks to two of the women who are in the congregation, Yodi and Syntyche. They must have become believers after he'd left and maybe they knew Lydia well now and they knew the slave girl and I wonder that she smiled as Paul said that the two of them really needed to patch up their quarrel and get on with each other better. And as Paul told the Philippians that they didn't need Jewish circumcision or the rites of the law, all they needed was Jesus. I wonder that Lydia had a big smile on her face, knowing that she was fully accepted even though she wasn't Jewish. And then he remarks in that letter also that as Christians, our citizenship is in heaven. And I wonder that they again smiled, remembering how he had Roman citizenship but now he spoke of a citizenship that mattered far, far more than that. The letter to the Philippians' high point is simply saying, look at Jesus. How he lived his life, how he gave himself for us, how he died on the cross. And let that love be among you and in you. The gospel, good news for the whole church. And as they listened to it again, each of the stories affirmed about what God had done in their lives. As we read the word of God together, as we share it like this, I hope that we are affirmed in what God has done in our lives. Or indeed, perhaps invited for the first time to open our lives and to say, Lord, I don't just want to be religious or I don't want to just be ethical, but I want to have the joy of Jesus. Or perhaps we're feeling trapped like the slave girl and all that's on in our lives and we need to say, Lord, set me free. Let me know your healing. Or maybe like the jailer, we know all the things that we've done wrong. And we just need the joy of the mad Jesus people that sing in a prison cell because they've been set free. Let us have that in our lives. Let us affirm that and encourage that in each other. And then let us have great faith that the gospel is for everyone, no matter their background and their story. We have something to offer as we proclaim Jesus Christ. Amen.